Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Ro Yacobi, who's a fellow at the Human Security Centre. Ro grew up in Afghanistan. And this is his incredible story of living under the Taliban, being tortured by the Taliban, coming to the UK, joining the Labour Party, and all the lessons that come from his upbringing, who his father was. I mean, this is an incredible story, and at times very, very emotional. The most emotional um, episode of this I've ever recorded. So just be prepared for that, because... Roe talks about in detail how he was treated by the Taliban, how his family were treated by the Taliban, and the despair that he now has that the Taliban are back in charge of Afghanistan. So this is raw. This is personal. It's also highly articulate and insightful and full of magnificent political analysis. But it is, at its heart, a a very, very emotional account of growing up in Afghanistan and his fear for that country now, for the people he knows and memories of the last time he was there. There's really, um, no, (laughs) I can't really do justice to what you're about to hear, but I just feel I need to warn you that it is, uh, as you would imagine, this is very, very raw for Ro and he speaks so well. Um, I began by asking uh, Ro or Rahullah um, about his name and whether I was pronouncing it properly. You've done it the best. You know, I've always struggled for people to. <laughs> of all the people who got properly. it wrong, I got it wrong the best. Yes, you've got it right. You've got it right first time. Now, there's a story about my name. When I was born, um, you know, during the Afghan Soviet War, uh, you know, I come from the Hazara ethnic group. Uh, we are, you know, one of the theories about us is that we're descended from Genghis Khan's army or soldiers. I think one one in every four person in, in the world has a Genghis Khan DNA in him. I don't know. The man has been breathing so... Um, yeah. And, and so we are the Hazara people who've been persecuted uh, for uh, over, you know, over a century. And, and the Taliban was just another manifestation of that persecution. But during the Soviet, what the, you know, the community that I come from so you had all different groups in Afghanistan, ethnic groups were divided, having their own factions fighting against the Soviets. So my father became part of this faction, which was established in Iran. And their core value, in a sense, was they were kind of a mix of Islamist leftist Shiites and, and then who, was not, who were not inside Afghanistan. They were not very overtly religious. But they had a they had a tinge of Hazara nationalism about it, so they're trying to, you know, bring up or conjure the 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 the, the bloodied and oppressed and the, the painful history of the Hazaras, trying to motivate people to actually 
this is the opportunity for us to fight for our rights. So this faction that my father belonged to, um, my father had always been the, the unruliest of his, his siblings. And, you know, you can see how eventually he became a commander. So he joined the, the, those the factions. They're ideologically driven by the, the Ayatollahs in Iran. So they were kind of in the, they were following the, the footsteps of Ayatollah Khomeini. Now we come to our name. Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, his name is Rohullah. So when I was born, my father had been fighting at a front against the Soviets. So they'd been based in the base. He had not been home for God knows how many weeks. And then when I'd been born, my granddad had named me something else. So, and then he sends a messenger to, to inform his son that he's got a son now. And then this poor man goes to tell this, you know, guerrilla fighter to say, okay, mate, you've got a son. So this poor chap goes to, to inform this, this commander that you've got a son and he goes and, you know, they're in a mountainside somewhere uh, clutching their Kalashnikovs and this man goes to him and it's, it's, you know, towards the end of winter as well, near March. Uh, sorry, so it's mid-March-ish. And, and then all these commanders getting together with all their soldiers, etc. And then my dad, this newly promoted commander, gets the news that he's now got, he's now a father. And then the, the more senior commander asks, what is the name of the baby? And then this man says, this is the name of the baby. He said, no, we cannot accept that. So we have to name the baby after the Grand Ayatollah Khomeini. So they called me Rahula after Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And now, as it happens, you know, most of those men were killed fighting. And then those who survived, although even during their lifetimes, they became they became very staunch uh, opponents of the very ideologies that they one day espoused. So, and then that's why I've cut the Allah bit at the end of my name. So I just call myself Raw, just to make sure that the Ayatollah does not turn in his grave every time I raise a <laughs> glass of wine or you know do a shot of whiskey or something so i know but you know i can actually hear him you know just groaning and turning and saying you've brought shame to my i don't know to my name you don't deserve my name but does that i mean obviously a lot of people um talk about catholic guilt i guess there are you know there's islamic guilt there's all sorts of guilt that growing yes. up in a sort of strict there's ayatollah guilt yeah there's ayatollah guilt yeah do you still sort of carry that obviously you've, you've lived in britain for a while now mm-hmm does that still have, I mean, is there still part of you that you, you can never shake off that sort of, um, having grown up in such strict circumstances? No, I mean, the thing is, one of the, you can be, I mean, if you go into more technical way to it, you know, I'm a humanist. You know, I was, I was named after the Ayatollah, but, you know, a humanist named after Ayatollah. Um, but it doesn't matter what your current beliefs are. Whichever culture you're grown up in, whatever society, at least I'm a humanist, in a sense, Muslim. You know, it doesn't make sense, but because I'm, I've, bro- I've been brought up in, a, in an Islamic environment. Yeah, so culturally parents Muslim. Muslims. So you're culturally Muslim in the same way that people, you know, atheists celebrate Christmas, although yeah. they're atheists, but they're culturally Christian. So 
you know, this is like that. So you still got, you know, embedded values in you that will keep carrying you on. It doesn't matter how philosophically you get away from the religious beliefs, but the cultural identity will always be there. As you said at the start, you, 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 you're Hazara, that is the part of mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan that you grew up in, the, the sort of people that you belong to. And you're growing up where your dad is initially uh, uh, fighting the communists. Yes. He's resisting the communists initially, and then they go. After and he's the... fighting his brother. Well, his brother was on the other side, or that was just yeah, a sibling rivalry? Yeah, his brother rivalry. was on the other side. I think the, initially, the initial bit for him to become, to join into a guerrilla movement, was that, you know, not just that persecution of the, the community. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd grown up seeing poverty, impoverishment, disease, everything that, you know, they hunger. And, and then he has a brother who goes to school. And then, you know, the secular school had become a new thing. And, you know, he goes to school. He's the one who, you know, more interested in education. My dad had never been. And, and then as the 1979 communist revolution takes root, the, the brother the, who is older than my dad, um, he gets into school. And then there's a drive, ideological drive, to get people who goes to high school uh, or mid-high school to get them recruited by the communists. And, and then once he joins in, so, you know, my dad has get, got this awakening within him to say, okay, I, I need to fight for the emancipation of my people and their, you know, persecution, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's an additional pressure on his family to saying, okay, the community pressures the family to say, okay, you have got a son, my granddad, you've got a son who's joined the communists. So we're going to expel you all from the village. And then this becomes kind of a, a double pressure on, on the family. So, okay, my dad says, I'm going to pick a gun, um, you know, just to prove that we are committed to this fight, fighting the Soviets, fighting the communists. And also, you know, he's got an innate um, belief forming within him. So the, the brother goes and becomes a communist. He is a, a guerrilla fighter fighting against him. So this is, in a sense, the story of Afghanistan, really. And then what happens is I met my uncle uh, three months ago, but about 10 years ago, he had a baby girl. And you couldn't imagine that. I I asked him this time. I said, he named his daughter Margaret. (laughs) Wow. And I, I, I just, you know, I, I had a discussion with him about, the, you know, the, you know, he's proper leftist. He sees conspiracy all around him. And then he sees Pakistan part of, you know, the Taliban part of that, you know, imperialist plot, everything. Wow. Just like, our, our, you know, hard left friend, friends in the UK. And, and I asked him, said, you know, my cousin Margaret, People in our part of the world, they don't name their daughters or boys or sons after, you know, they don't name them foreign names. But you've gone against, you've gone against everything. You've, why did you want to name your daughter Margaret? And I said, but any foreign name, but why Margaret? It says, after Margaret Thatcher. I said, <laughs> what? Whoa. Why did you do that? It says, because. She was a very strong woman. 
and you can see how people kind of get connected to various ideas through all the ways. So all the contradictions, they just make it so beautiful, doesn't it? It does, yeah. But do your, do your dad and his brother, your uncle, do they get on now? Yeah. yeah they were never, never actually, they, they were never enemies. They were never but in armed combat a, against each other. There was no risk they yeah, would have so ever have met. There, there's a joke still running through the family because the communist government uh, labelled everybody who fought against them as terrorists and troublemakers. So he sometimes jokes with his brother now and my cousins as well. He said, my, my dad around his side of the family were known as the terrorist. So sometimes they, 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 they talk around and say, okay, who's the terrorist now? And who's, you know, it, it's just a, it's been painful for, for both of them, uh, but they were... They, you know, they were never against each other in the sense that, you know, they just had chosen different paths. But because my dad, in a sense, he'd never been driven by, you know, the, the religious ideology side of it. You know, he was he was merely seeing the whole, uh, the whole, uh, you know, events unfolding around him as an opportunity to help his people uh, shackle off the, 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 you know, years and years and decades of persecution, really. So after the Russians leave, uh, Russia, uh, Afghanistan has a new oppressor and it's the Taliban. Um, I, I know you were young at the time, about 12 in 1999. But what do you remember about whether much or if anything changed? You know, did schools close overnight? Did things get better or worse in any regard? Or was it just some oh, the, constant oppression? Yeah, the, and it the was Russians just leave. Oppressors? Yeah, the Russians leave. They leave, their, they, they leave the, the regime that they're backing behind the regime managed to hold on for another two three years and then the mujahideen takes on they get into kabul and they began fighting each other so this fighting each other continued uh until 1994 when the taliban came about so the, the taliban began from kandahar and then you know made their way around but for me uh the first we at home we had given my father's what he was doing at home, we had. I don't know if it's a panic. Did 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 national the you know the the Japanese uh, tech brand uh, was it? Did it eventually become Panasonic or something like that? We had a a, a a radio cassette, so we'd always listen to music. My dad used to, and also listen to a lot of uh, BBC Persian radio. So that was the only means of getting information. And I think the the, the earliest I can hear about the Taliban was. When they captured, uh, when they captured Kabul, uh, and then they hanged the the Taliban. The no, before they captured Kabul, uh, they killed the Hazara's leader. So that's when you know we we heard about them. Uh, but it was around that time I kind of, fade, you know, it's it's faintly remember one morning we were sitting, you know, around. Uh, so I'm just kind of trying to link everything to 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 our British listeners, to how stories kind of, you know, comes to life in different parts of the world. We were sitting around our tablecloth having our breakfast, you know, it was just bread and black tea. And we we're listening to this radio and there's this news about Princess Diana. And I hear it for the first time. I, I vividly remember what happened. So this news anchor who reads about the, the death of Princess Diana and then my dad, Looks at looks at my mother, and and says, "Did you know she is the most beautiful woman in the world?" 
What did your mum say? Second most beautiful. I, I Thank you very much. What she, yeah, I, I don't know what, what, you know, I just remember that bit because. Wow. So I can, I can link the most beautiful woman in the world. She was not known as, you know, she didn't probably, she didn't know or he didn't know that, you know, she was Princess Diana, but it's just that Diana had become a, sem- a symbol of beauty, even to, you know, the furthest parts of the world, you know, to a village in Afghanistan. Yeah. And then the Taliban took over Kabul and it, you know, the, what we were beginning to hear about the Taliban were just synonymous with savagery, abuse, and brutality. And every month and year that passed, we could see the whole. You see the beep? Yeah. Uh, the whole just so that people changed. know, you are in Britain when you're telling this story. Like, you're not. Yeah, I'm not in a jungle somewhere fighting no. the Taliban. No, I'm not on a mountainside. Yes, and, and uh, they become synonymous with savagery. And, you know, we were, in a sense, lucky. We had schools open, and again, um, we, had, um, we had girls' school. Uh, and then my father used to begin to go, go out uh, for longer stretch of time. Sometimes he would come here, come at home in the middle of the night and then leave in the, in the evening. And don't come back for another five, you know, five, sometimes longer, two, three weeks, and then come back tired. Uh, you know, it was all that, you know. But the thing that was very, very powerful, and you know, that emotion in the, in the entire family was a that my my dad wouldn't come in one of these days. That was the concern that my granddad had. But he also had another answer. It says, my son will never get killed in action. So he had this innate belief in him saying, okay, I'm worried that he will not come home, but I also believe that he will not be killed, get killed in action. Well, because he was such and a good fighter. He had proven himself, you know, from a very young command, uh, you know, young soldier, uh, you know, growing up, uh, the ladder becoming a commander and then he, you know he he with at least within a circle of friends that he was in the community that he belonged to um he became kind of a a small figure in the area legendary status that's okay you know he's a very good fighter and and then now he he jokes about it because um i was a good fighter because I didn't know anything else, you know. Um, you know, my, my daughter once at school, uh, they, had, they were to be talking about their grandparents. And then the teacher had asked uh, uh, Mrs. I don't know, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. God, I, I don't remember the name of Mrs. something. And then she asked, Roya, what did your granddad do? Is that my granddad used to kill people. <laughs> what did the other kids say? I don't know. I just said, you know, the teacher came back to me and said, look, uh, you know, this is what happened. Uh, this is what Roya said. And is there anything that we need to know about this story? Because the parents going to go to, you know, the kids going to go to their parents and say, okay, we were having this discussion and Roya said, my granddad used to, used to kill people. Yeah. So watch your mouths. <laughs> you watch your mouths. And I just explained that, you know, this is what happened. You know, this man was a commander. He was fighting against Soviets and then against, you know, the Taliban, et cetera, et cetera. He was, in a sense, killing people, not 
the sort of people that you think he would be. You know, he was not a, I don't know, a serial, serial killer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So you know, from from then on, I I think I, you know when I first went to have uh, a sort of mental health support, uh, and that's why kind of I think at this moment in time, uh, when we get refugees arrive, we just you know the services given the cutbacks of the last decade are really poor you know refugees do not just need to arrive in the uk and they will be safe yes you know these are people who are traumatized these are the people who've been who've lost everything it's not becoming a refugee is such a painful lonely experience i always find it difficult to express you know all these years i mean i've spent 16 years in the uk and i only spent 12 years of my time in the village i always instantly get up in the morning check the weather where i am which is always groomy <laughs> but i also kind of there's something in me that i go and check the weather in the village you know there's something about you know you immigrate from one place to another that's a different story but when you're forced to leave your home it is a permanent wound that will never heal so this is the thing that we do not understand these people who come here not only they need sympathy but they also need emotional psychological social support not only that they will not need just to say okay you're here we're going to house you in a place that's where the council is that's where your gp is it doesn't work like that they'd need to be taught the entire way of life of how britain works how its institutions work what is it what its history is hey ho if any policymakers in the government listen to this get in touch because i can share you my experience it took me from 2004 to 2008 going through all the scars psychological the pain the, the loneliness the hurt that you know in me that i only managed to think you know what what i've been feeling all this anxiety all these panic attacks all these gloomy thoughts all these you know depression all this kind of you know all the symptoms that I'm getting, this this can't be normal. And it happened to me because I was working at some place and I asked this guy next to me, I said, you know, do you feel this the, the these kind of feelings? Do you feel about, you know, need to cry every day? Do you feel about, you know, your joint aching? Do you feel about feeling that you, your life's not worth living? Do you think, so I gave, gave him a long symptoms of how I was feeling. And then I said, no. Yeah. And then I thought, wow, I, you know, since my early days, I think this is normal. I thought this is part of what life entailed. But no, that's not normal. You should go and see a doctor. I said, what type of doctor I need to see? You just go to your GP and say, you know, this is what I feel. I went to, to see my GP. It was in 2008. And I explained to him, and then it took a few weeks and months for them to realize that I was suffering from severe PTSD. Now, you will see all these people coming over. They will need an entire support structure by people who have experienced this before. They will not only need mental health support, but they will also need, you know, it took me from 2004 to 2010, 11, by hours and hours and days and days and days of listening to Radio 4, BBC 5 Live, etc., etc., to understand what's really happening around me, to understand how Britain worked, to get me into kind of 
thinking, you know what? I need to learn what this country is about. I need to learn its history. I need to learn its people. I need to, you know, to 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 appreciate its culture, its politics. It's, you know, it's not music. I'm not very good with music, but it's just understanding the society that you're in, and that's when you begin to think. You know, I feel part of this society now. I think I'm making progress, not only progress, but I think I'm trying to, I'm contributing. So that is what is lacking. It doesn't cost a lot of money to pull, to you know, put these structures like this in place to use people who've been through it, successfully been through it. The the next generations who will come out of us will be better. You know that they'll 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 know what to do. My son, for example, I'm I'm really fortunate that he he managed to get a scholarship at a grammar school. Now it wouldn't have been possible had had it not been for me to have realized. You know this society works in a different way. You know this is how the education system works. This is how the health service works. This is how you know political institutions work. Without knowing all these, you don't know what to do. I don't know. I've, I've probably gone off the rail. Here. No, not at all. No, what it's was, fascinating. What are we talking about? Yeah, so well, it's all relevant. I mean, I, I guess most people would think, "Wow, you know, going from a mountainous region in Afghanistan to going anywhere in Britain, even a more remote part, would be a huge yeah. culture shock." Just yeah. and not just the weather, but like the roads, the buildings, the language, the shops, and all everything. You know, the way women dress and just uh, the way men dress. Just like society is just organized in a completely different way. But also, just politically, like you go from basically your uncle and your dad on opposing sides of an armed struggle to then yes. living in Wolverhampton and deciding whether to vote Lib Dem or Labour or Conservative. Like, the politics are just completely different. Yes, and I hadn't been able... I mean, I had always been political in the sense that I was, you know, my own being born became politicised. You know, the, the whole name. I was born in, course, in, in a circle yeah. where, you know, this is not what I chose. You know, this is what was done to me. And, but, you know, Afghanistan is a very complicated country. You look at its make, uh, um, the mistake that we're making at the moment is thinking it is over for Afghanistan. It's, you know, the Taliban has taken over, uh, all hopes lost. Uh, you know, you can see all these, you know, the pictures we see are probably, are, I, I don't have doubt that they'll be remembered as, as the grimmiest, you know, moments of human history at least modern time or our generation's history and but there are 40 million afghans whose pictures we don't see you know there are people who uh, the young men and women who've achieved so much uh, they they you know the, i was in kabul three you know april and um, i just got to tell you i had the best wine in Kabul. Just don't think about it. What was it? Uh, I don't know. It was some, some kind of Chilean. I, I, do, I didn't look at the oh. brand. The reason it was the best wine is because we drove north of Kabul. There's this place called the Shamali Plain. It's, it's famous for its vineyards. It's famous for its, you know, fruits. It's, it's, it's a very lush place. And it is populated by the Tajiks. It is just at the mouth of the Panjshir Valley, you know. The and, and and around the Shamali Plain, you can see the remnants of hundreds and hundreds of Soviet tanks and armored vehicles. So you 
you leave Kabul, you go to, you get to the north of Kabul, and then you get to the mountainous Shamali plain, where on each side of the road you can see the the the, the marks of, uh, you know, the the remnants or the artifacts of war left behind, and you think about there's a history here, you know, all these remnants of Soviet tanks, uh, you know, all charred tanks and weaponry, and then you look at this beautiful valley, the Shamali Plain, it's lush with trees, lush with fruits, lush with, you know, beautiful mud houses. And I was standing there thinking, this place was torched, torched by the Taliban because of its vineyards. They wanted to take out all the, 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 the grapefruit tree, the, the, the fruit trees and, uh, you know, the vines. And now, 20 years on, the people are back. The, the, the vineyards are green again. You know, it's producing some of the, base, the best grapes in Afghanistan. The people have, have rebuilt their lives. Every member of, you know, every household, every mud house that you see probably lost a number or two of their families to the Taliban. Now I am standing, sitting on, a, on, on the rock, and I just took this bottle of wine I brought from Kabul. Although, you think about it, Getting a, 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 a bottle of wine or whiskey or Jack Daniels or, you know, Red Label, it just takes you a minute in Afghanistan. You just call and it's so efficiently del delivered to your door. You never thought about, it. oh, the best, just got to tell you, the best weed. <laughs> it's called Chas. Yeah. Oh, man. And then, so Afghanistan is just, if you want to have a, I don't know, if you want to have a, a a stag do or something. Just yeah. take people to Afghanistan. You know, you'll you'll just blow your head off fun. But I'm just I just opened, I think you probably never knew that you know there are murmurs of Kabul being attacked, and you can see the security is fragile even in, inside the city. You the next car you drive where you know next to could be a, a suicide car. And I just opened this bottle of wine and you know, stood there or sat on, on the rock and drank it. And I thought, this is probably my point. And I dug a hole by that rock and buried that bottle of wine, that the empty bottle, thinking one day I'll go back and add another bottle to it. So what are we talking about? I've just gone well, off you, the so you were in, But you were in Kabul earlier this year? Yeah, April. And what were you over there for? We just wanted to... So I wanted to go there. Now, dear publishers, if you're hearing these podcasts, uh, Matt Ford, The Legend, The Political Party podcast, uh, I have a manuscript full of these kind of stories. Great. Uh, so if you, want to, if you want to get in touch, get in touch to The Legend, Matt Ford. <laughs> I'll handle so your I agent. have a manuscript ready. People, take it. Wow. You know, well, now's the time. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. And, and I went to, to see a member of the families, uh, and, and one was very poignant uh, that when the Taliban, you know, after our radio fell to, to the Taliban and it, it fell to my, my dad, had to do a peaceful handover because every other area that, that had been fighting, the Taliban, you know, massacred the locals. And now because every other, every other area had already fallen to the Taliban and my dad had lost all the support network, 
So they had to negotiate a peaceful handover of the area to the Taliban to save the people. So he had to leave. And then when the Taliban came after a few months, they began, you know, going after family members. So it was in, in, in the summer of 1999 that they came after me. I was the, only, the, the oldest male, age 12, left in the family. So they take me and I go there. In so you the get very kidnapped base. by the Taliban? Yes. I mean, that must have been uh, the most so petrifying in, experience of your life. Well, I thought it was a normal part of life there. You know, then, you know, yeah. that was nothing out of ordinary thinking, okay, my uncle had, my uncles had been taken up. Uh, they had been tortured one by one. But that's quite a lot every, to come to terms with at 12. Yes. But it was not, and looking back, it was not unexpected, in a say. It's, it's a mad way to think about it. Yeah. You know, I was... Already hearing murmurs that, you know, relatives worried about, okay, we need, we we probably need to get him out, but nobody quite got to do it until the last remaining uncle was taken and he was missing for the last four, for three days. His wife asked me in this afternoon to go and find him in the bazaar. And I go there, ask a friend of his, said, do you know, have you seen my uncle? You know what? I haven't. He's probably been taken by the Taliban. And as I leave the guy's shop, uh, this Taliban car, and the car actually belonged to my uncle. Uh, it was a Russian Jeep, uh, old uh, Russian car, and they'd confiscated it from you know, my, my uncle, who had no financial links to my dad. So it was entirely his car, but they confiscated it because he was the brother of the commander. Um, and then this this Taliban guy gets off the car. I had a a trainer, a pair of trainers. It's called Service, produced in Pakistan. So they're, you know they, they are kind of top of the mark at that time of you know. But it was a bit. It was two numbers too long for me, too too big for me. So he saw, okay, this is the son of the commander. He's wearing a new pair of trainers, and then he got off. But give me your shoes. So he takes my pair of trainers off me. And then gives me his, you know, old broken flip-flops. And then he asks me to get in, in, into the car. It's late afternoon. The sun's about to set. And then he just drives around and goes into a village where he wanted to pick somebody else up. Knocks did, the door. Did, did, did you have an option to run or not? I mean, would that have just been... No. Was it safer to get in? It was safer to get in because I had no other option. You know, the guy's armed. there's another guy with him armed and I thought I'd never imagined that they would actually take me even that was kind of mad Uh, at that point do you think oh this is it or do you think oh they'll take me whatever happens happens but I'll probably live were you not thinking in those terms at that point the the initial thought was that they'll probably because they're going towards our end of the village they'll probably because you know he's taken my I mean, shoes, and now he'll probably give me a lift <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the car that once belonged to my dad, now being driven by a Taliban soldier. But no, he didn't take me towards home. He took me to, towards another village where they wanted to pick somebody. And by the time we got there, it was getting, the sunset was already, you know, the sun's already set, and he reverted back towards the base once, once used by my father. And then I'm pleading before we get into the base. It's, 
it's dawning on me that, you know, we are in something, this is not good. And I began to plead and cry, say, okay, leave me. I need to go home. People are worried. My stepmother's worried. My, 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 you know, my uncle's wives are worried. I need to get the story. Oh, don't worry about your uncle. He's with us. I'm going to take you to your uncle. And are they, what are they being like with you? Are they taunting you? Are they just looking straight ahead? I mean, did you get any sympathy from them? Is one of them going, come on, man, he's just no, a he's kid. Just Maybe we'd have to do this. He's just cold. Not no emotions at all, you know. God. And then I'm taken to this base where my father once used as his base and pushed into one of the rooms. And I see it's already getting dark, and my uncle's sitting in one corner. And then there's another man side, you know, lying on his side, groaning of pain. And then I sit next to my uncle and just begin to weep you know that uncle he was the bad cop of the family you know he's the patriarch yeah if if any of us would do something wrong or had done something wrong he was the the one to you know to punish you know he was the disciplinary man of the family and we always you know i was always scared of him you know he was not one of the gentle people in the family and i instinctively went and threw myself on him, you know, began to cry, the car's on. Um, and, and, you know, he just hugged me and began to shower me with, with kisses and everything, saying, you'll be okay. And I, could, I can feel, you know, as he gives me, you know, his kisses, I can feel, I just find it so difficult to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I can feel the man that I never thought had any emotions. You know, have, you know, as he showers me with kisses, I can, you know, feel the his tears on my cheek. And then he 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 begins to tell me, "You will be okay," uh, and that you know they're not going to harm you. Uh, they've only taken you here because they want to pressure me. And then you know he was he he was illiterate. You know he he. He couldn't read or write. He was the man of the family uh, who looked after the, 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 the farm. We only had a small piece of land, land, our entire family. And then he began to go into this very philosopher-esque, you know, lecture, in a sense, to console me, to inject a bit of pride. And then he began to say, do you know the fact that we're here means that we have to be proud of ourselves. The fact that I'm being tortured is not denigrating me. It, you know, these people are savages, uh, and and the fact that in the entire district, in the entire village, they think we are a threat to them, is something that we should always remain proud of. Yeah, and I'm kind of going back to those moments all over, you know, thinking and thinking now even that you know, what happened what was really going on in his head that he began to think that way you know a man who had never read a book in his you know he couldn't even read abc and that he's tried to console me going into this lecture saying okay these people are using you to put pressure on us 
they want to take take our dignity away from us. They're trying to tell the people that, you know, this is what we can do to you if you fight against us. They're trying to teach the entire community a lesson by making an example out of us. But they're wrong. You know, that they should know that deep down, I'm proud of this period in, in my life. I've never felt so proud of you. Dad? You know, I, he begins to give these lectures about how proud he feels of the family, that he's never been able to tell my dad how proud he feels. And, and that, you know, he, he, you know, you will be okay. We will, we will always be proud of you, dad. I will never have a grudge against you, dad, for bringing this into our family. And, and I feel it now more strongly than I did you know, for example, a few months ago, because I know throughout Afghanistan there's going to be children like what I went through, and that they would have uncles um, doing the same thing with them. It just breaks my heart because I know what is at stake. And sorry, friend, mate, I, I'm just no. It's okay. It's it's. You're holding and, it together very, very well. You've been through an incredible experience and your whole family has. Yeah. And your country and, and has. Then, yes. And it just really pains me to, to think. It's very diff difficult to comprehend. Uh, you know, my main issue, my main, the pain at the moment that I'm going through is, is to think that, you know, there will be hundreds of thousands of kids like, like mine who will have to go through the same process. And I hope they will have uncles sitting next to them being tortured, but at least lecturing them and telling them that, you know, you will be okay. Yeah. We should be proud of ourselves. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And, and that uncle, Ro. Yeah. Is that the uncle that was fighting on the other side? No, no, he's a different, he's, he's, you know, just a normal village man. And what happened to him? Is uh, he still alive? Yes, he's alive. And oh. I was just going to go back to, you know, link it back to my trip to Kabul. Now, somehow we stayed awake all night in that dark room. And then at dawn, they called, you know, the two adult. The adult, the other guy who was there, he was taken out and tortured by in the middle of the night. I could, you know, I could hear his screams, you know, and then his pleas. Uh, that he didn't know anything about the, the weapon stockpiles that his, his brother or his friend had been keeping. Uh, 
And it was all about finding where the, 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 the weapons were dumped. Uh, so that was the entire purpose. And also there was an element of trying to, you know, uh, revenge, uh, take revenge as well. So I'm sleep. I, you know, it's in the middle of the night that my uncle's taken. Early in the morning, kind of, you know, at dawn-esque. Uh, my uncle's taken. And then I, I'm sitting shivering in fear. And then he's being tortured. And then after an hour or I don't know how long it took, probably less than an hour, less than 15 minutes, maybe. And he walked into the room limping. I could just, and, and he didn't say anything. And he hugged me again. And I, you know, he is a baldish man. And, and I'm touching his, you know, holding his, I don't know how somehow during this thing my 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 hand went over his head and I, I just felt it wet with blood in the side of his head. But he was still trying to console me and say, okay, they've done their bit on me and now they're gonna leave you. You'll go home in the in the morning, uh, you know, and then they'll tell you uh, to go uh, and then once you get home, tell my wife and your stepmother to to go to this Mr. X who will then take you out. You'd need to do that ASAP. I'll find a way out for myself. And then the sun rises, this Taliban guy calls me in, into the very room that my dad used as his commanding place. I'd been spending, I'd spent countless hours there, you know, sitting next to him. As he, you know, talked to his friends, held meetings. I knew every bit of the wall. I knew the writings on the wall. Probably I'd written myself in that wall with, you know, chalk and because it was a concrete wall. And I'm looking at, there were, you know, one of my cousins who was working with my dad, for my dad as, as his assistant, he loved Rumi, you know, the, the, the great Persian poet. And he'd written all around the wall with you know the Persian poems of Rumi, his philosophy, his lectures, his and his wisdom, you know. And then I, I, I'm looking at the wall trying to read, you know, these masterpieces of po Persian literature. They're all been wiped, they're all been scratched over. And this Taliban commander sitting next to a stove and you know, he's got a teapot on and, you know, with a bag of sugar on the side and then there's a big teaspoon on the side as well. He asks me to go and sit next to him, cross-legged. I sit next to him. There's light getting through the window. And then he asks me, do you know where your dad went? And who in the family is closest to you? Do you remember, uh, you know, where your dad hit his weapons do you know uh, you know and that's i'm just a kid it's my you know midterm school holidays i need to go back to school and i said you will go back to school you know he was very calm and and then he takes the spoon off from the sugar bat on the top of the bag of sugar and then puts it on on the on the stove it's it's burning and then you know, after a minute or so, I can see that the spoon is getting really hot. And I'm sitting there, I'm just wearing, you know, the, the proper Afghan clothes, shawl, kameez. It's winter, it's, it's summer, it's warm. So it's a very thin layer of cloth. 
And then, so you don't know. And then he uses his turban as tablecloth to grab the teaspoon. And I'm sitting, you know, defenseless. He takes it, it's hot, and he begins to tap it on, on my body as if it's a game, as if he wants it to, to have fun, you know? And I'm screaming with, with fear, not only that I don't realize what he's doing to me, probably I didn't even notice the burn. It's just that that fear. And, and then I can hear my uncle shouting from, you know, the other, the room that they're being held in, that, you know, you, you know, you bastards, you motherfuckers, you know, let the, the, the child go, take me, you can do anything you want to do to me. Don't do it to, to our children, you know, you cowards. Um, come and do it to me. And then somebody from the next door, a Taliban soldier, hears my screams, and then he comes in and says, asks the other man, says, can you let him go? And then he tells me to go. I, I, I don't remember how I, I stood up, uh, you know, until probably a few hours of the... The fear, I didn't realize that I actually had burn marks on me. So I, I got out and tried to hold the flip-flops that the, the, the Taliban commander, had, you know, the Taliban soldier had given me. I glanced on the side. I can still see my trainers. So I, I picked, it, it was in, in the rush of the moment, I picked the wrong, you know, some, a wrong flip-flop, even worse than the one they had given me. So I just made a runner and that, that was the last day I, I was in the village. And then going back to, you know, my trip to Kabul, uh, I saw, you know, that uncle whom I had not seen for 22 years. And one of the things he said to me, I'm growing old before you come. You were 12 when you left. The route between Kabul and, you know, our part of the country was held by the Taliban. It's very dangerous. Uh, it was always dangerous for the Hazaras. You come to Kabul, bring your son with you as well. I want to see you both. I took him with me. So I had fled Afghanistan when I was 12. He went into Afghanistan as a young British boy entering Afghanistan at the age of 12. And then my uncle comes from the village. You know, it was just surreal. We just sit there, numb, you know, looking at each other. He's making jokes about how, you know, you've grown up, that you're making a family proud of what things you do, that you've got a voice, that you do TV, that you write, that you're active. Every time, you know, I... I I sometimes see you going on TV and, you know, the, the children shows me and I don't understand the word that you're saying, but I just feel so immensely proud. And I, I, says, I then take the clip and show it to other people in the village thinking how deep down proud I feel. And he probably thinks, you know, it was that moment that clicked something in you that made you to become what you became. And then we're sitting cross-legged and having a cups of tea. And I, I notice his uncle. And there's a big round burn mark left from that night. And I just, I, I, 
I tapped on my son's knee and I just, just have a look at that. In English, just have a look at that ankle. I'll tell you the story later. And it, you know, that, that is, that is what, what really, you know, that's the mad world that we've been. And that awful mad world has now returned. That is the, the, the most painful part for me because then, you know, when the Taliban came over and took the village, my overarching concern, you know, I can still remember there was so much fear because the Taliban had pillaged and massacred the Hazaras in other parts of Afghanistan. And, you know, they'd raped, you know, they'd collected Hazara girls as concubine. And, you know, we, we, we were hearing stories that the Hazara girls, given the, the amount of support they had from Pakistan, that the Hazara girls were being shipped out en masse to Pakistan to be given to their soldiers as gifts. And probably one of the things that made my father make that choice, in a sense, it was a brave choice to make, to give up fighting, knowing that the consequence would be our women will be taken as concubines, our people will get massacred. The, the, the least worst option would be to, you know, to leave the area and do a hand, you know, peaceful handover. You know, then I, I, I remember feeling sick, you know, anxiety, the, the anxiety of, you know, going around, throwing up, you know, out of the fear and anxiety, thinking about telling my friends that I wish my dad wasn't a commander, you know, telling my, my friends that I wish my dad had just been a farmer, a shopkeeper, because it was such a difficult thing to go through. Then my fear was, not for my uncles, not for our family, but it was only for my dad. But now it's entirely different. I can feel that, that fear and pain to, to my bones. You know, I know what's at stake. I've made two trips to, to Kabul in the last uh, four years. And I, you know, from our family, just to give you an example, that uncle that I, I've, I've just been talking about, he was a traditional man. You know, a man of the village who had never ventured out, you know, outside the village. And he has, still has his traditional values. And now think such a profound change took place in the past 20 years that his daughter was the first from our family to go to university. And for him to agree that his daughter should leave the village for the, the capital of the country of 8 million people. The thing that the people don't let their girls out on their own, but think of the, the, the profound change that took place in such a man that he said, okay, my daughter, you go on your own to a city that you don't know. Go to university. And now she's the doctor and she's fearing for her life. And then when the Taliban took over Kabul the other day, and he texted me saying, she texted me saying, I'm on I'm on the on the rooftop looking at the the university building that I went to. And there's a white flag on top. And I'm just crying my eyes out. These things really hurt. 
Yeah. You know, I didn't realize it then, but I, I know what's at stake. I, I, you, you times this story of one girl by hundreds of thousands who went to university, who, who did so many good things. Perhaps one of the, the key movers for me to, to, you know, to change my life for the better when I, you know, 2010, when I became a British citizen, the first thing I did was to join the Labour Party. How mad is that? You know? <laughs> well, if you want sort of factional infighting and... Uh, yeah, I, I, the uh, thing is, I've probably, probably, probably cursed the parties, never won, you know. And, but, and, and I don't think that's your fault. At, <laughs> I blame myself. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, to, to think about it really, it, you can't put into words the amount of pain that I feel for those people who have to, you know, who have a dark wall built around them. But we have to see Afghanistan has changed so profoundly. The Taliban hasn't changed. They still want to rule by the very values that, you know, made them to, to send child suicide bombers to blow up schools instead of sending them to schools, you know, to send them to blow up maternity units, to kill babies, to behead people. So they want to implement the very same values. But then you have Afghanistan, a part of, a, a part of it that so, you know, has changed so profoundly in the past 20 years that you cannot put that genie in the bottle. You know, you cannot. And, and, and it's just that that makes me, you know, hopeful in a sense that given... And I wrote for, you know, a piece for The Independent yesterday thinking that you look at Afghanistan's history, we in the West do not have a very good appreciation of the, the country. We don't understand the, 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 the multi-layered, uh, you know, multi-ethnic with, with a dark, blooded history. Um, you know, the 20 years just gave Afghanistan an opportunity to move away from that, it, you know, it, it, the West helped Afghanistan to build institutions that were on, you know, slowly but surely making progress in, 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 in getting those institutions to take roots and slowly expanding those, those values to move Afghanistan into a next chapter. But now everything's gone, the Taliban are back, those institutions will be wrecked. But you look at Afghanistan as a country, in the past, since 1901, the country's had 14 rulers. Now, I asked you, Matt, how many of Afghanistan's rulers out of those 14 rulers have been able to rule and survive? Just give me a guess. Oh, crikey. Three. None. Just one. There's only Hamid Karzai, who who managed to survive his terms in office with the colossal amount of help, you know, from, from, from the international community, both politically and militarily. He had multiple attempts on his life. He had his brother killed. He had his, you know, his father killed. The rest of the, you know, the, all the other 13 were either assassinated in office or were exiled and died in exile. So we're talking about a country like this, you know, Afghanistan is for me, it's merely entering a new phase in its conflict. 60% of Afghanistan is not Pashtuns. And those 60% do not want the Taliban. 
And many inside the Pashtuns do not want the Taliban either. So the Taliban managed to surprise everyone with a blistering attack across Afghanistan. All resistance crumbled. But you can see the, the, the people who want to resist the Taliban are slowly but surely coming together. So to think about the Taliban bringing peace to Afghanistan, or at least this is going to be the end of the story for Afghanistan, is wrong. You know, just look at the country's history. It's not going to last. The Taliban are not, the, the Afghans, as I told you, have not been very kind to their rulers. You know, they have they've kept killing them or, or, you know, kicked them out of the country. You know, with a group uh, like the Taliban in the 21st century, a, a, a country that is better connected to the world. I mean, that uncle that I've been talking about, he does not read or write. He, he doesn't speak, of course, English, but he's still got a Facebook account. Yeah, and the the women in the furthest parts of Afghanistan, you know, in the evenings they watch Turkish soap operas. You, you think about those women who who belongs to my, the, the, you know, who belong to to my my uncle's generation, my mother's generation. They know what's going on outside Afghanistan. Yeah, forget the young generations of Afghans. You know, they're better connected. They know the world. Last 20 years gave them an opportunity to understand, you know, to get connected to the world, to, 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 to become artists, to become doctors, to become, I don't know, uh, you know, poets, writers. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I walk across, you know, the Kabul city. You'll go to fantastic bookstores with, with books, you know, from Western ideals, John Locke, John Stuart Mill, Immanuel Kant, and all translated into Persian. And, you know, people are reading them, you know, the best books, I think the, the, the top sellers that, that, you know, the last year was, you know, Noel Harari's, The Sapiens, the Homos, you know, Homo Deus. And so these are, you know, these are the, the, the literature, the books that will have profound implications on the young. I mean, people are reading Christopher Hitchens, for God's sake, in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they enjoy a lot of it. But it just, it must have been so interesting for you to come here anyway, you know, and I can't imagine what a change in life that was. Um, but you joined the Labour Party at a time when Britain was obviously part of uh, NATO in Afghanistan. Now Britain's left. And the Labour Party in that period, up until now, has gone on a period where really turned its back on the idea of Western intervention, of, of any sort of responsibility to countries like Afghanistan and remaining there. Had a leader of the mm -hmm. Labour Party who was very keen to get troops out of Afghanistan. We've seen what the legacy of that, even in the last few weeks, has been. When you would say to people, and I presume you did to other Labour Party members, I know what it's like to live in Afghanistan. I've been tortured by the Taliban. Would that change their perspective? I mean, did you find that Labour Party members were... Uh, sort of surprised, perhaps, by your perspective on, on what British foreign policy should be? Now, I joined the Labour Party. There's, there's a thing I should give you about, you know, that, just a bit of context, why I joined the Labour Party. Not only that I had a, a moral obligation, kind of affinity to the, to the party because of what it done, especially, you know, our hero. Hey, hey. Hello, Mr. Blair. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, and, and, and 
what happened for me was uh, when I when I was learning English, uh, there was a, a colleague that I worked with uh, at a factory, and he was do, he was studying at university uh, TESOL, uh, teaching English for speakers of other languages. And I asked him, "I'll give you a lift every day, and then you teach me English. I'll sit next to you in this factory." And he said, "Okay." His first advice to me was, you know, instead of listening to music in your car, listen to Radio 4. You'll not only learn a lot about Britain, but you'll also learn to pronounce English. And uh, so it was 2010. The Labour Party's lost power. Yeah. And we're all doomed. And, you know, uh, it's all been downhill since 2007, 2007. You know, that not too good good day. Um, and, and, you know, I always kind of had, of course, an affinity to, to Blair, you know, his, his statesmanship. But that might you surprise know, some people. Me, you say, of course, but a lot of people here might presume that if you grew up in Afghanistan, actually, you wouldn't be that keen on Tony Blair. No. Probably not, but you, and given my experience, and I was really keen on, you know, I was, I, I kept defending to people that it is, it is right to remove Saddam Hussein from Iraq. It is right to remove his sons from there, because I know how he feels to re, to live under tyranny. I know how he feels to be tortured for, you know, doing nothing wrong. And would the that reflect that, um, your family, your community's wider feeling around uh, the Western you know, removal of the Taliban in, in the wake of 9-11, would a lot of people yeah. welcomed it? Yes, because, you know, the, it, the Operation Enduring Freedom, you know, really did bring freedom to the, to the people of Afghanistan. You know, it did give them a chance to, you know, to build institutions for girls to go to school. And then you have, you know, just an example within our family, every girl since then, have, has been to school, has been to university. And you know, did you ever feel like Western topics. imperialism? Did you ever think, oh, they're coming here to rule us, this is just another group of people trying but to impose I, I their I wish, values. you know, for me, I wish that the West had been more imperial in their attitude to Afghanistan. And the reason for that is because Afghans didn't have the knowledge and expertise of setting up institutions. So the, 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 the billions of dollars that spent in Afghanistan could have been better spent if the international community had set up a mechanism in, you know, not that there is not enough people who would do it to actively recruit, you know, just as they did in Kosovo, for example, the UN backed, you know, they brought a program, set up institutions, you know, run by members of, you know, the, the international community, trying to get them roots and then get the locals as apprentices, you know, teach them how to do it, teach them how to use the system, teach them how to use the bureaucracy and delivering services to people and thus eliminating the opportunities for corruption. You know, the undoing of Afghanistan was corruption. You know, the colossal amount of corruption. Britain and the West trusted the very same leaders who had been wrecking Afghanistan, showering them with money. You know, they used it for their own gain. And so for me, you know, going back to that listening to Radio 4, is I was you know, being brought up in a political family and then getting increasingly politicized, learning about things going on in Britain, listening to a lot of radio, radio for, 
And then David Miliband's the foreign secretary. I'm really keen on him. He's the flag carrier to Blairism. You know, everybody's talking about him. And then one day I'm listening to him on Radio 4, and he's got a very specific way of saying have to. You know, he doesn't say have to. He just says have to. And I remember throughout, you know, it took me 45 minutes from my home to my workplace. And I kept saying have to. Have to. (laughs) So I'm just practicing how to pronounce the words properly, just the way he did. And then I begin to find out, you know what? This guy has been to Oxford. He's done PPE. Okay. And then it becomes an inspiration for me to think, okay, now... He wanted to become the, the, the party's leader. I went to the website and signed up to become you know, part of his campaign. I was not even a British citizen. And, and then he said, oh, somebody from his team called and said, okay, that's fine. You can sit because you're you know, a person with permanent, uh, you know, indefinite leave to remain in the UK. You can still participate in things, but there are certain things you can, for example, you can't join the party. Uh, but once you're a British citizen, you can still do that. And so I was trying to, you know, I, I, they were sending groups of people out trying to create that movement for change. Do you remember that? Yes. What happened? <laughs> I'm not sure change ever came. Well, change did come, but perhaps not the sort they thought. No, so the, the, he set up a group out of his campaign called the Movement for Change. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I thought you meant the, um, I was being slightly facetious about uh, the direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he set the, I became part of that movement for change. Great. And I went to, to London. I met David Miliband there. And... You know, it was such a fun time. I was beginning to realize that, you know what, I can do this stuff like this. I, I'd love to do it. It's part of my contribution, part of becoming, you know, an, an effective and active member of the, the society. So, and, and then when I became a British citizen in 2010, September, I think it was, I went home and joined the Labour Party. And then my, you know, my edu- political education was underway and it's never been it has been really eye-opening at the first um you know clp meeting or so, uh, at the first clp or this why is there so many so many meetings in the Labour party i don't know <laughs> what's the point in them all i don't know oh there was the, the branch beer now is it branch meeting yes yeah yeah so the branch meeting the first meeting i went i'm just sitting in the corner trying to find out somebody and and they all went about, you know, looking at the list of the minutes of the previous meeting yeah. and then ticking off and correspondence, talking points for this meeting and ticking mm. off. And then that was it. And somebody was making a comment about, you know, how awful the conservatives are and, and, and the, the milk snatcher. So the first time I'm hearing about Thatcher, the milk snatcher, and the, 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 the anger with which they are talking about the Tories. And I just said, OK, I'm not very sure. And then there was this local election. <laughs> and, and, and this local election, and the Labour Party did very well. And we we're all asked to come into this party. And then I'm going to name drop him because he's a very big fan of yourself. And he's been such a big part of my political education in the Labour Party, in Wolverhampton. And he was then a councillor, my friend Ian Angus. You know, he is the person who's kind of tutored me into, you know, he's, part, he's you know, he's, from our, our gang, you know. Yeah. And he's actually been to one of your events as well. So, and then, you know, I, he began to, you know, we became friends. I talked about Afghanistan with him and then we became really close friends. Ever since then, he's been such a good help. So, and it, it just began to, 
you know, go downhill. Even from, you know, that, that I was in that uh, David, Ed Miliband's first speech in which he said, we shouldn't have gone to the war. You know, that, that, that rebuke that, you know, he gave And how gave did that make to, you feel? I didn't stand to crap. I didn't stand. Or everybody around me just went, hey, and, and I didn't. And I just, on the way back from radio, I heard that David Miliband hadn't as well. You know, that he had a, yes. a thing with Harry Harmon. That's right, yeah. You voted for yeah. it, you said to her. Yeah. And then I said, yes, this is the guy I really like. And, but were you, know, you offended when you heard that? Were you disappointed? Like, it must be a, an incredible thing for you to feel. You come to this country, you join the Labour Party, and then the leader of it says that liberating the country you're from, that you'd been tortured in, was a bad idea. Yeah, and, and, and that's why, I, you know, I just went cold from then on. I thought, okay, this is not going well. And for me, um, you know, you talked about the state of, uh, you know, the party, but I think they're symptomatic of the entire West. Um, you know, I think the West is unsure of its purpose. It's lost its way. It doesn't know what it stands about. You cannot find a Western leader now to steadfastly stand and defend liberal democracy. You know, we have been on the, on the compromise footing since at least the Blair days. You've, you can see, you know, you could, you, could, you could disagree about certain policies, certain attitudes you know, about that era. But you look at Blair, you can... Gerhard Schröder in Germany, you look at you know, the, the, the Bush in America and you had Michael Howard in Australia, but there was a you know, left-right, but there was a, a core philosophy a, a core commitment that the West stood for some things and over which it was not willing to, to compromise and then ever since then, we have been on the compromise footing, layer by layer you know, every time authoritarians have come one inch forward, we've gone one mile back. And why do you think that is? And it's just a lack of confidence in in itself. You know, we are not actually we have we do not have leaders who have the commitment, the 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 uh, and and the core backbone in a sense to stand for those values. We had a kind of a domino effect of leaders from the Western liberal democracies going one after the other, another, another, another. And then you came to, you know, to Cameron, to, I don't know, to Obama, for example. To me, you know, Obama was all about looking good in the eyes of the university, to, university students around the world rather than doing good. You know, it's always the soft liberal, you know, liberal ideals of looking good and feeling good about it itself. You know, there's so much that you can give in. And that's why. For me, it's not about Afghanistan. It's about the state of the West, and it's about a collective future. It is about, you know, the West no longer willing and able to defend itself, in, you know, facing adversaries. And, you know, you can also, at least in the past decade or so, you can see that erosion of confidence in liberal democracy. It hasn't come up. You know, from Putin, it hasn't come up from President Xi. It's come up from within. You know, when you think of the poster boy of liberalism, Macron, the day that the Afghans are falling off plane, to come out and issue a statement and say, we'll have to do things to stop Afghan refugees getting into Europe. Yeah. It tells you something very, very deep, you know, you know, horrific that is 
that is at the heart of Europe, at the heart of Western liberal democracy. And just the impotency uh, of seeing other leaders say, oh, we implore the Taliban to uphold human rights. I mean, it's meaningless statements, unless you're going to back that up somehow. It doesn't make sense at all. You know, it's all about looking and, good on Twitter. And, and, and the thing is, for me, and that's why I keep saying it's, it's, it's an issue of fundamental core values that the West no longer understand that he has to stand up for. You know, Brexit is just an exa- another symptom of it, because Britain does not know the core values that it should be standing for. We can see a, a, an authoritarian streak and Malays, you know, taking over liberal democracies from America, Trump. Yes. And then you have, for God's sake, we've got members of the, the European Union who are more to, you know, close to fascism than liberal democratic. You know, you have Hungary. Why on earth, if, 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 if the West is so committed to its values and confident of defending its values, why on earth is Hungary in the EU at all? What message it sends to, you know, to Erdogan, to, to Xi, to Putin, to, you know, others. And, and then you have Poland. You have erosion of institutions and values within Europe. It has been the case for the past 10 years or more, at least. You know, you had Blair gone. You had Gerhard Schröder gone. At least we still have, you know, Merkel standing. And she will soon be gone as well. And what will happen then? You know, we are on the compromise footing with the, the worst people on earth. And I just think about what Putin must be thinking about now. Yeah. You know, that, that speech that Biden gave, that the day that Afghans were falling off plane to say it was their fault for not, you know, wanting to leave early. That tells you something about the deep fundamental issue in the West as a whole, America is on, on a disintegration path, but taking the entire West with it. You know, America's politics is malaise. See, empires don't fall from outside. They crumble from within. Yeah. You can see this, the, 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 the symptoms in American politics. And, Slow and, and steady feels, erosion. Just incremental. Yes, it, it, it's just explosion of yeah values, and and this is the deep worrying thing. You know, my 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 worry at the moment is not, although it's painful. The deep worry that I have is not about Afghanistan. You know, Afghans, as I told you, will find a way. Although the, the immense suffering that they will have to go through it, they have been going through it for the last century. They will find a way. Afghans are not an ordinary bunch of people. But my deeper concern, the thing that we're not talking about is the malaise of liberal democracy, the ill health of liberal democracy, the lack of leadership to defend it. You know, there are some things you shouldn't be compromising with, you know, for, with President Xi, for, with, with Putin. But we are. What are, all, you know, what are all these about? These are serious, deeply worrying stuff. You know, it's, we have Putin bankrolling the Conservative Party. You know, we until recently had anti-Semites running the Labour Party. And we still have leadership in the Labour Party unsure of where it stands on, you know, deep, important international issues. We have Conservative Party. Our Prime Minister is nothing more than a buffoon. Our Foreign Secretary is 
trying to organize. Did he say that the sea was closed? Yes. Yeah. And, and just think about it. And then you have Biden. And what is the next step in the denigration and disintegration of liberal democracy? You have, you look from Australia to Japan to South Korea to, to Europe, east of Europe, and then you look at America. And people are already having second thoughts about, you know, when the COVID began, I think how efficient, and a lot of people in Britain, don't you see how efficient the Chinese have been in controlling the virus? No, you bastards, they've been efficient in suppressing everybody to talk about it. Ro, you no, need really to stand sorry, for Parliament as soon as possible. Dear Labour Party, give me a seat. Just work out your contacts and ask them to give me a seat. I think we need <laughs> these. They won't give me a seat. I, I actually made a runner for it uh, in, in 2017. I just didn't even hear anything about it. I just applied for it thinking, you know, they'll probably have a never look into me. Of course they wouldn't. You know, Corbyn wouldn't like me. And in, in this, you know, you look at the, the state of the Labour Party, for example, we're just going back to the home ground. I have had people in the Labour Party telling me that the Taliban are better for Afghanistan. <gasps> what? I have had people in the Labour Party telling a friend that the Taliban are misunderstood. And what do you say to them when, you, when they say that? You can't, you can't reason <sighs> with these kind of people. How can you reason with something like this? Oh, my word. Just the ignorance of it. It's the ignorance of, but it's also the symptoms of the state of liberal democracy. Yes. You know, we unsure. I think what we need in the world, the liberal, the liberal democratic world, you know, we have our institutions crumbling. Don't you see that? Our politics is crumbling. Don't you see that, you know, Putin's men funding the Conservative Party? Don't we see that the Labour Party is blooming in, in a dire state, not offering Bro, you need to get in there, man. You need to stand for Parliament. You need to get in there. You need to be a strong voice. Get not just for seat. Afghanistan, but seat. for Britain, for liberal No, it's not about Afghanistan. Things. It's about, you know, the core values. You know, yes. it's about, it's it's painful. You know, it's it's gloomy. I know I want to have, you know, I, I want to have so much hope. But unless we arrest this decay, unless we have a deep thinking about what our end game is, Authoritarianism has been on the ascendancy for over a decade now. They even captured America, for heaven's sake. You know, um, with Trump, we thought America had gone mad temporarily. But with Biden, we look at it and think America's gone mad, but it's also diseased. And you look at Europe, what is NATO about? You know, what is the, the EU about? What is, you know, the, the, the future of the free press about? Ro, you I know? know, and so many people listening to this will agree and will share that despair. They probably won't be able to feel it as keenly as you have because of your life experience, but they, they agree with what you're saying. But the way you speak and the things you say, genuinely will give people hope they really will so i know it may not feel like a hopeful time but your thoughts and the way you express them the way you share your life experience and your perspective will give hope to so many so thank you so much for coming on
You're welcome. I'm really sorry. I, I, I just did most of the talking and I didn't. No, that's the idea. That's the idea. Do me a David Miliband. <laughs> I'll work on one for you. <laughs> you say hello to David. Hello, David. You know, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, before we go, he inspired me to one day turn up to the Wolverhampton University to say, I want to go to university. I want to study politics. And this woman behind the counter, who probably changed my life, said to me, have you been to, you know, have you got A-levels, et cetera, et cetera? I said, I've got none. Yeah. And then he said, okay, have you heard of the Open University? What do you want to study? I said, I want to study PPE. And, and then she searched on the Open University website and thinking, yeah, they've got a PPE. Call them. It might suit you better. Great. And then I did go. I had never done an essay. I'd never had any experience. I'd left school you know, from that day that the Taliban took me and never been back. But there was something that kept me go on and go on and go on. And I, I became a PPE graduate uh, because somebody I looked up to and I learned to have to say, have to. Uh, from, <laughs> well, you, you do know, a very good David Miliband impression. So we should form yeah, a double act. Uh, I'll do Ed and you do David. We should do. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, seriously, uh, you know, if somebody wants to have a, just tell your contacts. I've got a manuscript, man. I just, you know. Well, lots of people in publishing, I'm sure, listen to this podcast, Rose. So that may be something that comes of it. And on behalf of everyone, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. And it's really, I think I've, I'm now part of the liberal elite. I can just <laughs> gloat about it. I can just gloat about it. Oh, Rose, that was amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I really love talking to you. Well, there you go, Ro Yacobi. What an incredible guy. What an inspirational guy. And just, I'm so grateful that he told that story in such detail, really, because it's important that it's heard. It's important that people actually know. It's one thing to say, oh, it's terrible. But what does terrible actually mean? And it's so important that the world hears what it actually involves to live under a, a regime like that. And people in Afghanistan are going through what he went through. That's just appalling. Um, so I know it wasn't easy for him to talk about it at length and in detail. And I'm just, as I'm sure you are, immensely grateful that he was able to do that. At times, it was very, very emotional. It's just completely distressing. But it is important that people like myself who haven't been to Afghanistan know what it actually involves. And this is true of repressive regimes around the world. People have to be able to tell that story in detail. Because sometimes the vocabulary we have is it's completely insufficient to really try and comprehend what it involves. Um, but Roe is an incredible guy, an inspirational guy. And hopefully those of you that work in publishing that are listening will get in touch with Roe. Um, and anyway, if you'd just like to follow him, I've put his details um, in, in the blurb and in the show notes so that you can follow what he's doing. He's a fantastic communicator, a, a brilliant thinker. And, um, I just think we're all so lucky that he's prepared to to tell that story because it's clearly very difficult for him to tell it, particularly now. Um, so what an incredible guest. What a privilege to have had him on here and to have been able to talk to him about that because I can't imagine what it's like to have gone through that, to talk about it, and to have to talk about it at a time like this. 
but knowing that other people are going through it. So we shall leave it there for today. Thank you for downloading. Thank you to Roe for being a fantastic guest. Someone out there, publish that book. I'll see you next time. Bye.